Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today I wanted to ask you, what is capitalism? Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Uh, Well, I'm sure there's some like economist person out there who's like, well, let me tell you, capitalism according to the Oxford Dictionary. But to me, uh, I think most people would say it was something really simplistic, like, we exchange money for goods and services, and that is how the economy runs. But I feel like it's so much more than that. So, okay, what makes capitalism unique is that it's an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit. Mm, okay, that that is a way better answer. It makes sense when you think about it, right? So. Capitalism just means that you exist in a system where an individual person or a private corporation can own a business, can own rental property, things like that, which makes sense. We exist in that now. We see that all the time. And this is actually what gives us the term private property. Hmm. So, you know, you've probably heard the phrase that like private property is the root of all evil. Yes. Yes, right. And I think a lot of people hear that and they think it means like your personal possessions, like your things, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, But it actually doesn't, or it's not supposed to anyway. Actually, I saw online someone said that there was this like huge campaign, like propaganda wise, to make Americans think that the term private property in communist literature like referred to like their objects in their home, like their house and their car, so that people would hate communism. Please don't take my favorite mug. Yeah, nobody... I need it for my coffee in the morning. Nobody um, actually... Your favorite mug is not technically private property. So that would actually be something more like a personal possession. And in reality, that stuff is usually called personal property uh, or personal possession, which is categorized differently than private property in a system of capitalism. Because in a system of capitalism, private property is just the stuff you own but don't use for any reason other than to make money. Hmm. So yeah, so all of your little things are when you know you hear that phrase, private property is the root of all evil. It doesn't mean like, you know, your MacBook Pro is the root of all evil or whatever, <laughs> or your morning cup of coffee is the root of all evil. What it refers to specifically is private individuals or private corporations owning the means of production or a business or a rental property, something like that, that they extract profit off of. Um, so how long do you think that capitalism has existed? Um, my guess is like 1600s Europe based on my history classes from high school. That's a pretty good memory actually. (laughs) Um, yeah, so capitalism has like roots in theory dating back to like around 1000 AD as a year. Um, but it's only really been implemented for a little over 200 years. Yeah, because I, okay, this is only because I remember doing a hilarious project about uh, feudalism and serfdom in, like, Western Europe in, like, eighth eighth or ninth grade. Um, Yeah, so you're going to be really helpful to me in a few seconds because I actually want to talk about (laughs) feudalism. Um, But, yeah, so I feel like a lot of people think, like, it's the way it's always been, which you and I have talked about before. Like, capitalism, it's the way it's always been. In reality, it's a relatively new economic system. Um, so especially compared to like human history, we've been around for a long time. Yeah. We've only been capitalisming for hardly any of it, really. 
Whoa, yeah. Right? And so knowing all of this and thinking about this and finding ourselves in the middle of the second great collapse of capitalism in our lifetime. Oh, God. Right? We had the first one in 2008. Oh, gosh. And now we have the 2020 uh, collapse. Um, I just, I wanted to do this lovely episode today on the history of capitalism. Woo-woo. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Try to sound more excited. <laughs> I know. It's, I was just thinking, I was like, wow, we're like the perfect age for we got the recession at the perfect time. Yeah, because we graduated college into the recession. Yeah, and then, you know, the COVID thing. Mm-hmm. And like, so it's just like, wow. Yeah, it's funny because I talk about how I'm, spoiler alert, if you don't know me, I am not a fan of the capitalism. Um, <laughs> so I talk about this a lot. And I think like oh, the moment I felt most seen on the internet, someone commented like, you know, I don't hate capitalism. But the more I learn about you and what you've experienced in your life, I really understand why you do. And I was like, okay, that's all I can ask in this world. I feel seen by you. I feel understood. Uh, and I liked that. Um, so as you touched on, before we can even get to capitalism, we have to talk about what was happening before that, which was feudalism. So maybe you can tell me what you remember from, what was it, your, your class I th- I'm pretty sure it was feudalism. eighth grade, and we had to make some giant diagram or like diorama oh I loved those (laughs) so it's like you make I I could totally be wrong because you know how you like you remember things wrong and like I'll be like oh like remember when we made that diorama of the the castle my sister would be like no I remember perfectly yeah no yeah the subjectivity of the human memory yeah but what I remember is basically and it blew my mind is like the feudal structure and you know i believe the one that we looked at was like western europe you have like a castle with like a lord and that land is given to him by the king and then under the lord there are like his like how his manor or his like castle thing and then he has land that the serfs work and i remember they showed us this pyramid where they're like all of you like would be serfs and we're like we're in eighth grade being like what <laughs> but, uh, but we're lords and ladies <laughs> and they're like no not living in not living in rural colorado you are not you, you are, are serfs. serfs yes i feel like in many ways we're all still serfs <laughs> yeah. we still Surf. have landlords we still have the lords of the land yeah. wait surf punk with an e oh <laughs> oh I think you might have done something, honestly. <laughs> I think that's really important what you just said. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you you nailed it. That's ex- You remembered it correctly. Um, the vassal or the serf was granted access to live on the land in exchange for labor. So they would do all the labor and then the lord would be like, okay, you may dwell here, you know, that kind of thing. Um, which is, yeah, where we get the term landlord from today, which is mm. creepy. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to sound fancy. I know, and also it's like it's too it's too real. It's like okay, so most people live in these apartments. They pay their landlord rent money, and the rent is usually higher than the mortgage, and the landlord lives off the difference. So it's like you're you are you're the serf. You're you're paying for the lord of your land to live flushly and do nothing. Yes, I I'm a surf punk. Though. Yes, you are a surf punk. Um, so this system existed for around 700 years is between the 5th and the 12th centuries in Europe and that's a lot less 
like time now that we've had capitalism than like the time we were doing the feudalism. So capitalism is, yeah, relatively new, especially compared to even that. Uh, so I have kind of like this timeline of like the, the birth of it. The, what I see is the enemy, but you know, <laughs> this is where it spawned. Um, the first thing I found about this started with the year 1058. Um, there was an influential Arab philosopher of Persian origin named Abu Hamid Muhammad al-Ghazali, who was active during the era of Islamic merchant capitalism. So it was a different form of capitalism, but it, um, you know, he was a philosopher and he was critical of any means to force equality of income and wealth in a society. He believed it provided a pretext for rulers to become tyrants and force people to surrender what the rulers would perceive as excess wealth. He was concerned about the proper distribution of that excess wealth, um, like who is judged to be in need of the excess wealth, what is judged to be excess wealth, uh, whatever. So he developed this economic theory and included musings about voluntary exchange and evolution of markets, production activities, hierarchy, stages of it, uh, barter systems, the evolution of money, and the role of the state and public finances. And he kind of had some of what I could find to be the first-ish capitalism musings. Um, and then we had, you know, in 1332, maybe 300 years later, uh, Ibn Khaldun, who was a Tunisian Arab historian who advocated for a scientific method to study society. So he's often considered the founding father of sociology. And he studied supply and demand, prices, profits, macroeconomics, growth, taxes, the role of the government, and money. And he's believed to have formulated an early version of the labor theory of value, which is just a theory that explains why goods were exchanged for certain relative prices on the market. Um, it used to be pretty popular. It seems pretty common sense. It's like, oh, it took me more time to make this, so it costs more than the thing it took me less time to make. So it suggests that the value of a commodity is determined by and can be measured objectively by the average number of labor hours necessary to produce it. And the amount of labor that goes into producing an economic good is the source of that good's value. Uh, so this was actually popularized later by like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and even Karl Marx. But now it's kind of fallen out of favor. Kenna, do you have any guesses to yeah. why? Okay, I see this. I know some people, some snobby people look down on retail, but I think it is so fascinating because according to, you know, classical quote unquote economics, like the pri the value of something will be um, easily reflected in, you know, demand and supply, some supply and demand. Um, so, you know, if you have a great supply of shirts, uh, it will be cheaper. And if you have a small supply of shirts, it will be more. Yet, a lot of times, especially in fashion, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense why things are certain prices. There'll be like a, a ton of one thing, yet they're very expensive and it might not reflect like what it put took to put in there, especially selling vintage clothing. Sometimes you can just name the price of something and that's just what it is. So to me, that doesn't really, I don't know. Like people want to make capitalism sound like, oh, well, that's just how it works and it's so easy and the, you give money and then you get the thing and that's, and it's all fair and that's how it works. And I'm like, no, it's so weird. So yeah, so like my guess about why this idea that the value of something would be directly linked to how much work it took to make the thing or perform the service or do any combo of those things. Uh, my guess is 
is that the people who did the least work started to make the most money. So they were like, we can't use that one. That one, it doesn't make sense anymore. That's a flawed idea. I was just thinking about how sometimes in my life it has felt like it felt like the people I knew who were making the most money did the least amount of work. And the people who worked the most made the least amount of money, like in terms of like, Working service jobs, like oh, yeah. you work your body to the bone and you get paid less than people who are doing like a lot of like easy, quote unquote, easy, like office jobs or like creative. I was just like, yeah, like all work is difficult and has its own difficulties. But I mean, that's even true in my life. Like I make the most money I've ever made right now. I work four days a week and I think back to me working seven days a week, every single week, 10 to 12 hour days, making half this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been there too. Right. So it's true. There's not, we don't exist, unfortunately, in a society where the value of your labor determines the cost of anything. So I did think this was interesting though, that he kind of had these theories that predated like the labor theory of value is what it's called that we heard all these, you know, European white dudes come up with air quotes later on. Um, but yeah, so then he had this disciple uh, around 1364 named al-Makrizi. So he was a disciple of Ibn Khaldun and he expanded on his theories. He lived in a period of Egypt uh, at the time that was marked by hyperinflation and famine. So he studied the cause of inflation and its effect on redistribution. And he was one of the first authors on the concept of monetary theory. So monetary theory posits that a change in money supply is the main driver of economic activity. So kind of like supply and demand of money. Um, And I know that you are familiar with this concept because we've talked a little bit about modern monetary theory. Yes. Which kind of rebuts this. And it actually says, you know, this is relatively new, but it says, oh, instead of positing that nations with the ability to produce their own fiat currency can issue as much money as they need. And as a result, they have no pressures when it comes to financing. So like what they're saying is basically, no, maybe this idea that money supply is the main driver of economic activity is wrong because you can just like come up with infinite money. Yes. Yeah. So that would be a good episode on its own. I think we should do a modern oh my monetary gosh. theory episode. Oh my gosh, yes. Because um, I don't know much about it. Yes, you would be better, um, a better explainer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Kenna gets tied up in her words many of times. <laughs> I love Kenna's words though, so that's fine. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, so all of this is happening in the 1300s, 1400s, kind of these ideas are getting tossed around. And then we kind of end up at 1492 uh, in the colonization of what's now the Americas. So, you know, Christopher Columbus, a famous invader and slave trader who prompted the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas and was generally a horrible piece of shit. Oh my gosh, there is like a, a TikTok that's like... about Christopher Columbus that I'm just like, I, yeah. Yeah. He's pretty fucked up in a lot of ways, uh, harrowing ways. And like the ways that you know, where you're like, wow, this man preempted a genocide. Like this man did horrific things to like people he encountered, indigenous people. But then there's just like also weird things. Yeah. Like stuff at the time where everyone's just like, uh, he's a monster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like weird bestiality thing. Beyond the pale. Yeah, really wild. Um, so he landed in what's present-day Bahamas in 1492, and within 150 years, 95% of indigenous people in the area had been, you know, what people call wiped out in air quotes. I don't really like that term. It seems a little dehumanizing, but it was the result of large-scale mass murders as well as infectious disease that the colonizers brought along with them. 
Um, and European imperialists saw opportunity in the Americas after this happened, not only to capture and enslave indigenous people, but also to exploit the land for natural resources. And this kind of is what opened up the way for a new system to emerge. Yeah, it seems like colonization and capitalism are inextricably um, entwined with each other. Like very much, so. they reinforce each other. There, it's not like they're part of like the same evil licorice swirl. Yes, no, it's true. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of people have theorized about the intersection of capitalism and imperialism, and how. Um, the thing about capitalism is that you're, if you're always like motivated on profit, 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 eventually you're going to run out of resources and your profit, the, the capacity for you to generate profit is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller where you are. And you start going and looking for other places to exploit resources and from, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's a very common, um, critique of capitalism that people find. So when all of this was going on and, uh, colonialism was taking off in the Americas, um, you know, we had a lot of like European money funding all of this, uh, kind of a newer school of economic thought developed, um, from 1500 to 1700, which uh, I think is pronounced mercantilism. However, when I was in high school and I learned about this in AP European history, my teacher had a very unique Swiss accent and she called it mercantilism. And that's what my head always wants to say now. Um, I feel like in my high school, it was mercantilism. Oh, see. But that might be the Colorado pronunciation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so whatever the case, the mer- the, mer- the mercantilism, it, it happened. Uh, it came about. And it was a school of economic thought that was popular with people like Thomas Mann, who was the director of the East India Company, mm. which I'm sure you remember the East India Company. Uh, vaguely from, again, high school. Yeah, I feel like I learned about this in high school, but I didn't really understand how sinister it was. Weren't they basically pirates? Okay, so <laughs> technically they were a trading body for English merchants. And they were specifically to participate in the East Indian spice trade, but they also traded cotton, silk, indigo, uh, saltpeter, tea, and opium. And then eventually um, they started, it's like, I don't even know, you didn't trade enslaved people, but they became, you know, involved in the process of of slave trade, which is really fucked up and horrible. Um, And they actually had this like whole brutal imperialist reign like I wasn't even aware of this but they conquered subjugated and plundered vast tracts of South Asia they were so successful that one of the first Indian words to enter the English language was a slang for the word plunder loot that's where the word loot came from because the East India Company was doing so much looting in India Uh, the trading company had a militant presence with its own troops who would overthrow local leadership abroad and instead establish English traders as the power in their place at one point, 250 company clerks for the East India Company, backed with a private military of 20,000 people, were the effective leadership in Bengal. They were just in charge. Uh, and by 1803, this army had grown to 260,000 people and overtook an entire subcontinent with reach extending as far as Delhi. And almost all of India south of there was ruled uh, in a company's boardroom in London. Wow, that would be like if Amazon had its own personal military. Exactly, yes. Um, So there's this quote here from a Mughal official named Narayan Singh, uh, shortly after 1765, he says, what honor is left to us when we have to take orders from a handful of traders who have not yet learned to wash their bottoms? Oof. Yeah. 
Um, so the British didn't conquer India as a government force because we all know about like colonialism in India, for, but it, it was a single unregulated private British company that conquered India, which I didn't really put that together. And it was this company that enslaved people, siphoned resources and funneled them back to England. And this was the company, you know, that Thomas Munn served as director of, and he was the guy who loved mercantilism. Mercan mercantile How did you guys say it again? Mercantilism? Mercantilism. I like that one. Um, and this uh, ideology believed that a nation's wealth was measured by the gold and silver it possessed. So you always needed a trade surplus of all this gold and silver sitting around because that's what made you wealthy and important. And it also was really into like protectionist international economic policies um, and also envisioned a capitalist model where state and private actors cooperated to achieve common goals, including economic growth and state power. And it's still a pretty prevalent school of thought today, like it intersects with capitalism still. And one of the main examples I found of this online was Brexit. Interesting. Because it's very like trade protectionism. Yeah, because I mean, wasn't the European Union meant to be kind of like a, a NAFTA where it's like free trade between like European countries? Yeah, so this was like really um, interesting that you're like, oh, I can still see how this kind of plays out. And um, in 1689, John Locke wrote that two treatises of government. Uh, I remember learning about this guy in high school too. Did you? Oh, yeah, because... He was the precursor to the um, Declaration of Independence. God, wow, oh, you're really good at this. Enlightenment guy. Oh, I, li I listen to some podcasts, okay? Oh, you've got a refresher. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly, I remember a lot from high school history. Amazing. Except I, for my teacher. I don't remember his name, sorry. I just remember that in the AP European history class, we had to do like a role play activity, and I had to be Catherine the Great, and my job was to defend like serfdom. And I remember I oh, had to no. like debate with other people in the classroom as though I were Catherine the Great. And I was like, I love serfs. They can have no freedom. I hate when they do things. I hate when they're not working. Ooh. And I remember that being like the weirdest thing. Oh my. Well, actually, when I was a senior in high school, my history teacher had us read the people's history of the United States. So that's good. You had a good one. Yeah. Parents were mad. I and I was that. like, yes, I always knew there was something fucked up going on here. <laughs> yeah, okay, so you'll, you'll remember a lot about this guy then. So John Locke, you know, he argued that humans had certain natural rights to the preservation of their own life, the liberty of their body and conscience, and material possessions. And his conceptions of private property, as well as his justifications of its unequal and unlimited accumulation via money, arguably laid the ideological groundwork for the birth of capitalism. And they were, in fact, yes, the foundation of the liberalism that would later influence the Declaration of Independence. And that brings us to Adam Smith, who was another one who was important in all of this shit. So 1723 to 1790, he's a Scottish philosopher, and he is who is widely considered to be the father of modern capitalism. So similar to Locke, Smith was an economic liberalist who believed the value of things comes from people. Uh, he wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, which was the same year the Declaration of Independence was written here in the U.S., and he emphasized the benefits of the division of labor and free trade. This did challenge some pillars of mercant mercanti mercantilism? Mercantilism. Mercanti I like the accent. Mercantilism. <laughs> I didn't mean to throw it. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, which had historically been more protectionist with trade like we talked about. However, uh, IMO, it does not challenge some of the ideas that led it to flourish. Like Adam Smith still maintained that humans' tendency towards self-interest results in prosperity for the whole society when regulated by 
competition. Uh, so this is a guy who championed the free market or laissez-faire economics and uh, that creepy term invisible hand. You remember that? Yes. And I'm always like, but what is the invisible hand? I know. It's just there silently it, guiding and regulating things without actually regulating where them. It's, just, it's like when, when someone's like, you're having a bad time and they're like, things will just work out. And you're like, but how? And they're like, things just will work out. And you're like, but... How? Maybe it's Santa Claus's invisible hand. Oh, God. Maybe we just have to imagine and believe it's there, and then it'll come and bring us presents. Yes. I think that's the free market economy theory. I think more in superheroes. Oh, okay. Guiding it, um, but that's just because I've been in a superhero hole. Uh, yeah, I feel like, okay, a thing I like to do a lot is yell, uh, where's your free market god now in my Twitter timeline uh, every time a bank gets like a corporate bailout. <laughs> and I, I was writing this and I was like, is Adam Smith the free market god to which I am cursing the heavens? Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, because it's just like, well, I, I feel like there's just so much of this going around in like a lot of like, like you hear about all these like data scientists and economists and researchers who basically fabricate their data or they make a point without anything to back it up they're like oh well you know the free market it ju it just naturally works and you're like why what is it to back it up they're like shush 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 we don't need that data right they're like it just does we don't need proof they're like it just does it's like but where's the fucking proof right so in addition to like the free market thing he was also uh into the labor theory of value which we talked about earlier where it's like oh yeah if you work for something and the amount of time you work will necessarily make it have more value whatever so he kind of introduced that more formally um and the main kind of difference that developed between mercantilism are you proud of me i said it smoothly Ooh. yes and capitalism then was the concept of wealth accumulation versus the concept of wealth creation so this would be the difference for example uh, between going to another country and stealing all of their gold or going to another country, buying a plot of land, hiring a bunch of people to work on it to mine the gold, craft it into gold jewelry that you then sell for a higher price because the gold jewelry could theoretically be more valuable because the hours of labor it took to craft it, right? So you get the value of the gold and the value of the labor. Um, and this is kind of how I differentiated the two. And of course, all of this is supported by an ideological doctrine that upholds the individual's liberty or freedom to do so as being the most important thing. Just this ideological doctrine that's like, if you want to go invade another country and steal their resources and basically enslave the people who live there so you can make more money, that's your right. That's your freedom. I like how people who want to do just like bad and awful shit just justify it with freedom. Yeah. It's like you literally could just be like, I am going to do the most heinous thing I can imagine. But no, no, no freedom. Freedom. Um, you can't stop me. Freedom. And that's like the basis of like liberalism and the, the ideology behind, you know, the liberalism that kind of helped craft the U.S. So like all of this is going on in the 1700s and then in 1776, obviously, we have the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Um, and it was heavily influenced by this liberalism, this liberal ideology. Um, and liberalism is a political and social philosophy that revolves around individual rights, civil liberties, democracy, and free enterprise. I like that that's included in there. It's like you as a human have all of these rights. You are valuable. You are just as valuable as business. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, 
Okay. And of course, you know, this term liberalism is not to be confused with how in the United States, for example, we use the term liberal and conservative to describe maybe like political leanings. Um, but this is like more like the classic idea of liberalism. So I know some people can get confused because we use that word to mean different things kind mm-hmm. of now. Um, but along with the growth of concepts of liberalism, which argues liberty or freedom is the foremost value in liberal civil society, came the knowledge that not everybody had this liberty. Like that's pretty obvious to catch right you know, out of the gate in 1776, right? We had this Declaration of Independence that promised that, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, But then you think about it and you're like, well, this was 1776, that definition of men is pretty limited. Like, how does that apply to women? How does that apply to indigenous people? How does that apply to black people living here in the Americas? How does that apply to immigrants? And the history of liberalism because of this has been marked by ongoing struggles by different groups, women, enslaved people, migrants, the landless, the poor, to be considered fully human because of this, you know, obvious hypocrisy. Um, And I think that's really interesting because I think the hypocrisy, it's like kind of common sense when you're like, okay, because there's always going to be a thing where, where does your freedom to do shit interact with my freedom to not be affected by you doing shit? Yeah, I just listened to actually a very um, interesting uh, podcast on on the media about the First Amendment and freedom and where like about freedom of speech Mm -hmm. um, and where where does speech interfere on somebody else's freedom? Right. Why does that freedom of speech trump all other freedoms? Like, why does the freedom of speech trump the um, freedom to be safe? You know. Yeah. So yeah, this is interesting because I feel like that's, you know, something that was kind of happening here where it's like, okay, you write this document and you're like, you white, white American landowning men have the freedom to enslave people to run your business is basically what, and then you're freedom. like, freedom. Yeah. You can do anything with freedom. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, what? How? Okay. What about everybody else's freedom? What about that? Um, So yeah, between 1760 and 1840, um, we of course experienced the Western Industrial Revolution, period of rapid growth in machinery, technological innovation, streamlining of production. And you know, this started in Britain in the 1760s and then later spread to other European countries and to the US around the 1790s. And we saw this uh, create a shift from primarily agrarian economies to machine manufacturing and industry. And really this is where we see capitalism start to emerge and take hold. So it also shifted the center of global power and wealth more towards the West, away from China and India, who had previously been the dominant global economies. And it increased productivity and it resulted in more and cheaper goods for an emerging middle class and the wealthy. However, European peasants were dispossessed of their land and forced into paid labor where they normally earned extremely low wages under conditions which often resembled slave servitude. Children were part of the labor force working in dangerous conditions. Uh, Women either provided unpaid care work or were used as like a weird scapegoat to drive down labor prices for everybody else on the workforce. Like, oh, you want more money? We're not going to give you more money. We'll just fire you and start hiring women. They want to work. Ha ha. They'll work for anything, which is like really weird, like anti-bargaining tactic to remind the workers that they were replaceable. Uh, Factory owners controlled the means of production and gradually took control of state economies and power structures. And as industry grew, more land was taken for construction of cities, resulting in forced urbanization, as well as a rise in consumerism and materialism, pollution and gross environmental harm, eventually via the rise of fossil fuel extraction and combustion. 
And then on top of this, we had the colonization of Africa and other countries in the global south by European powers, which was a result of this industrial expansion under capitalism, as Europe needed more raw materials and markets for their finished products. Thus, capitalism developed as a class of wealthy people owning factories, trading groups, business in general, and then all of their workers, who were paid as little as possible in order to generate revenue for the owners to retain. Workers were forced to labor in terrible conditions with limited sunlight, subjected to pollution and smoke from the machinery indoors. There were many accidents and injuries that occurred during the workday. Um, even children were harmed in this way by the machines during the workday. Most laborers worked for 80 to 100 hours a week, which we talked about in our uh, 69420 workweek episode, and often working 14 hours per day, every day, six to seven days a week. And low wages led to cramped living conditions in the cities for workers, often forced to live five to 10 people per single room, as big as a traditional studio apartment today. And of course, this allowed disease to spread rapidly. And then we had also capitalism resulting in this emerging middle class of skilled workers, managers, clerks, accountants that had the money they needed to survive, as well as money left over for like leisure goods. And these are the people who lived comfortable lives, usually in the suburbs, because the cities were considered these unhygienic slums. And hardships faced by the working class, um, you know, including migrants, enslaved people who were forced to labor still during this time, resulted in the rise of some socialist anarchists and early rights-based ideas and uprisings about labor. And the thing that I thought was really uh, interesting to point out, just, you know, not quite as an aside, but maybe a callback to our prison episode is, we will remember that in 1865, most Southern states still implemented black codes which, you know, were the laws that basically said like, okay, you know, we're not doing slavery anymore, but um, it's basically illegal to be black here. And they would do it in all these weird ways. So it's like this uniquely perverse display of capitalism and white supremacy intersecting. And we saw these black codes develop, you know, in the United States South in the mid 1800s that required black people to have written evidence of employment for the coming year, each January. And if you left before the end of the contract, uh, you'd be forced to forfeit all of your earlier wages and you were subject to arrest, which meant basically your employer could treat you as horribly as they wanted and you had no recourse to leave. And people who broke labor contracts were subjected to beating, forced labor, apprenticeship laws, forced many minors, uh, either orphans or people whose parents were deemed unable to support them by a judge, which obviously is steeped in racial bias, forced them into unpaid labor for white planters. And in South Carolina, a law prohibited black people from holding any occupation other than farmer or servant unless they paid an annual tax of 10 to $100. And black people were given heavy pen penalties for vagrancy, including forced plantation labor in some cases, working for no pay to the landowners. And this is really where we see the intersection of capitalism and policing begin to develop in the US, uh, which again, we talked about in that episode about policing, leading to the forced labor for private companies that we still see today in our prison system. You know, not only do we have the capitalism resulting in the privately owned prisons, but then we have capitalism resulting in the privately owned prisons contracting out the labor of inmates to private companies. Yeah, and um, capitalism and the rise of modern policing policing are actually very linked together because the history of modern policing, police state putting people in prison really didn't come around until the arise of capitalism and because people needed to enforce private property rights. Yes. And who is and they're not enforcing them against people who own property. They're enforcing them against people who take private property supposedly. A lot of like original like criminal laws are against people who didn't show up from their work, stole from their employer. Like it was it was created modern policing from 
everything that I've read was created as a way to keep people from taking profit from people who produce, you know, from, from the capitalist from the overseers. Owners. And because prior to that, like enforcing like criminal justice laws was very like, it was just based on the community and it would be like, yeah, it's, it's just very interesting how that is also inextricably linked together. It's like yeah. prisons, colonialism, like all of these other things are just act, the direct line to capitalism. Straight, straight train, no stops. Yeah, the, <laughs> the police state exists to uphold and serve the interests of the capitalist landowners, property owners, business owners, whatever. And, you know, we even see that when we look at um, like protests that have gone on and then we see the police not protecting people, right? They're protecting businesses, so they're protecting the businesses from the protesters, not protecting the protesters from harm, not protecting the protesters from themselves because they're the ones usually causing harm. You know, mm-hmm. we see this play out in all these ways. But yeah, the police state definitely has always existed to serve the interests of the capitalist in the United States. Um, and so, you know, all this is happening and we see people start to get really upset, start to get really jaded by this. Like I mentioned, we start to see a rise in some socialist and anarchist kind of ideology and, you know, that leads us to Karl Marx, right? 1818 to 1883 was the life of Karl Marx, who was a Prussian revolutionary who made a fundamental contribution to philosophy, economics, politics. And at the core of his theory was this idea that human societies developed through class struggle, which in capitalism manifests as a conflict between capitalists who own and control the means of production and the working class who need to sell their labor power for a wage. Capital accumulation results from the process of extracting surplus value from these workers. So for example, let's say you're, you're a worker and you work for one hour and uh, you make a widget, okay? And the widget sells for $100. And the cost of keeping the building running and the lights on and the widget machines going is say around $10 per hour for the space required to make that one widget. And the materials cost maybe $10 more to make that widget. So that means, you know, you take the selling price of 100 and you subtract that 10 and that other 10 and the total value of the widget is $80, right? But let's say the worker making that widget only made $10 per hour. So then what you have is you have $70 left over of what's called surplus value. And that's the value of the laborer's work for which they are not compensated that the capitalist owner takes, right? So that's like the surplus value idea that he's trying to explain to people. So Marx instead advocated for transition out of capitalism into socialism. Um, And I feel like most people don't know the definition of socialism either. Do you know the definition of socialism? Um, I believe from my college political science classes is state ownership of uh, the means of production. So not necessarily state ownership, but a worker, a worker led society where the means of production, factories, businesses, etc., are owned by workers. Yeah. So it depends on your definition of state. It depends on your um, implementation ideology for socialism, whatever. Um, but not an arbitrary capitalist, you know, stealing the surplus value of the labor. And then the resources are distributed to people in society based on the idea of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Uh, he actually didn't call it socialism in his writings, though. He called it a communist society that hadn't yet reached its true form of communism. Um, do you know what communism is, the difference? Um, there is no state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So Marx postulated that a dictatorship of the proletariat would be necessary to usher in this new stage of socialism, which isn't actually a dictatorship at all, but it's that it's just like a form of democracy wherein the workers together as an aggregate become the temporary ruling class to impose worker ownership, and they use democracy to figure out what they need to do. And after a period of this socialism, communism would properly develop, 
which would, yes, be stateless, moneyless, and classless as a society where everyone's needs are met based on this theoretical idea of how this would all work. So then um, you have this kind of gaining popularity. Some of the workers are getting discouraged. They're getting disgruntled. They're like, there has to be a better system than this, you know. And this is pretty early into the system developing. But then we get to around... Um, 1855 to 1887 and this is also something we talked about in our 69420 workweek episode which is August spies in the American labor movement and anarchists of the late 1800s. So spies immigrated to the U.S. in 1872 at the age of 17 and settled in Chicago where he worked as an upholsterer. He became involved in a trade union and then he joined the Socialist Labor Party in 1877. Three years later he began contributing to an anarchist journal and became editor in 1880. So, you know, at its core, anarchism is just the belief that there should be no ruling class, like ruling class should be abolished. Beyond that, though, there are lots of different types of anarchism, most of which can be divided into either social anarchism or individualist anarchism. Um, Under social anarchism, we have things like collectivism, anarcho-communism, things that rely on an idea of community care and are closely linked to Marx's kind of idea of the eventual communist society, right? Stateless, moneyless, classless. There are lots of different types of anarchism beyond that too, though. There's anarcho-primitivism, there's anarcho-feminism, there's anarcho-pacifism, there's queer anarchism. You know, there's this whole kind of spectrum. Um, But the anarchist labor movements that emerged in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they kind of popularized an idea called anarcho-syndicalism, which is just a type of structure that can exist within different forms of anarchism. And it posits a radical trade union as potential force for revolutionary social change, replacing capitalism and the state with a new society democratically self-managed by the workers. Anarcho-syndicalists seek to abolish the wage system and private ownership of the means of production, uh, which they believe lead to class divisions. Important principles of syndicalism include the worker solidarity, direct action, general strikes, workplace kind of like activism and worker self-management. So spies became active in this type of anarchist labor movement and labor organizing, giving speeches, writing pamphlets to help. And while the end goal of these movements would have been something like anarcho-syndicalism or even full-blown communism for labor activists starting out in the late 1800s in the U.S., they also focused on short-term goals as well, like better pay, more protections, and the 40-hour work week, which we talked about. So fed up with the inhumane working conditions that capitalism and the Industrial Revolution had created, in October 1885, Um, Spies told a meeting of the Central Labor Union that, quote, we urgently call the wage class to arm itself in order to be able to put forth against the exploiters such an argument which can alone be effective, violence, end quote, which is pretty, pretty, I'm, I'm ready. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, That would work on me. So on May 1st, 1886, a general strike began in the United States in support of an eight hour workday. Over 340,000 people went on strike. Wow. And over a quarter of these strikers were from Chicago alone. And employers were so shocked by this that some people actually just like gave them a shorter work day immediately. Like 45,000 workers, they were just like, yeah, yeah, just do it. Like some people were really freaked out by it apparently. So this campaign was put together by the IWPA, which is the International Working Men's Association. And on May 3rd, during an IWPA rally, 
Uh, while spies gave a speech, the police arrived and they opened fire on the crowd of workers protesting, killing four of them. So the next day, spies published a leaflet reading, they killed the poor wretches because they, like you, had the courage to disobey the supreme will of your bosses. They killed them to show you free American citizens that you must be satisfied with whatever your bosses condescend to allow you or you will get killed. If you are men, if you are the sons of your grandsires who have shed their blood to free you, then you will rise in your might, Hercules, and destroy the hideous monster that seeks to destroy you. To arms, we call you, to arms. So a second leaflet was published after this, calling for a mass protest at Haymarket Square. However, spies intentionally worked to remove all the violent wording from that flyer in an effort to protect the protesting workers from the police. And on May 4th, over 3,000 people came to the protest, and spies, along with Albert Parsons and Samuel Fielden, gave a speech. When the police arrived and attempted to forcefully dismantle the crowd, which violated their right to peaceful assembly, uh, granted, I think that's been the First Amendment as well in the Constitution, isn't that? Uh, yeah, I believe so. <laughs> It's constitutionally granted. I don't, yeah. <laughs> so when this happened, a protester threw a homemade bomb at the police and it exploded, killing eight men. The police immediately attacked the crowd, killing an undisclosed number of protesting workers and injuring over 200 more. And many people identify the bomber as someone named Rudolf Schnaubelt, uh, but police instead... They arrested him, but then they released him, and they instead went after eight prominent labor organizers, including August spies, none of whom were actually involved with the bomb, as an excuse to kind of silence the mm. growing labor movement. So these men were known as the Haymarket Eight, which we talked about um, also in that last episode about the work week. All eight men were found guilty. Five, including spies, were sentenced to death, three to life imprisonment. And on November 11th, 1887, Spies was executed. And his last words were, there will be a time when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. And May 1st, 1889 was designated as International Workers' Day by the Second International commemorating these protests. So we've got all this happening kind of in the United States. We've got a growing kind of anger at this new capitalist system emerging that is really pretty shitty for people. Um, and then we have in 1917, the Russian Revolution. So Russia had a semi-feudal system of Tsarism, but it was deeply affected by the West spreading capitalist goals. So I read this essay about it because I don't know much about Russia, um, but from everything I've read, it was a really unique way that capitalism manifested there. And I found this quote from an essay, essay um, I read, and I think it's the best way to explain it. So I'm just gonna read the quote. The driving force of capitalist development in Russia more than anything was the external military and commercial pressure from the West. Modern machinery and technique were imported by Tsarism itself, mainly to maintain the gigantic military and police apparatus. But while Tsarism managed to hold its ground militarily, it was unable to do so economically. European finance capital flooded the Russian market, and in the weak and rotten Tsarism, they found an ideal partner. In Russia, the superiority of Western production saw little competition from the backward local capitalist elements. Thus, the indigenous capitalist class, instead of being counterposed to the old feudal aristocracy, actually rose from within Tsarism itself and under the domination of Western finance capital. So as World War I waged on from 1914 to 1918, mass protests erupted in Russia, resulting in Tsar Nicholas II being overthrown in February 1917 and a reformist provisional government being set up in its place. There was a municipal council with members in communication with the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, a city council of Petrograd, which was the capital at the time, composed of peasants, workers, and soldiers. In October, amid deepening hardship and inaction, the Bolshevik party led workers and peasants in revolutionary action under the slogan, All Power to the Soviets, and the second All-Russia Congress of Soviets elected a Council of People's Commissars and Central Executive Committee and resolved to build a socialist society. 
However, four years of civil war combined with the US, UK, France, and Japan uniting with uh, status generals in an effort to reinstate the toppled old powers complicated their efforts. So then this kind of brings us to 1919. And we exist in this post-war era and we're getting all the disgruntled workers. And um, this is pretty interesting. It's the International Labor Organization. So as World War I comes to a close, the ILO, International Labor Organization, was created as part of the Treaty of Versailles, which was that document that famously ended the war. And the ILO was founded with the goal of promoting the ideals of social justice and the right to decent work, but it was kind of created in reaction to this fear that states had of workers' revolts envisioned by these communist and anarchist movements that were popping up all over the place because people were not okay with all this horrible capitalism shit. It brought together representatives of governments, employers, and workers of its member states to adopt international labor standards, kind of to try to appease the working masses. And then we come up upon 1929 to 1939. Um, in the United States, do you remember what kind of happened there? Um, the Great Depression? Yes, it was in fact the Great Depression. So. In 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed, uh, and we now today know that as Black Tuesday, which was a single day where billions of dollars were lost on the stock market. And of course, stock is just um, publicly traded shares of ownership of a company, of a business. And kind of that value is tied to uh, also like the profitability of a business. So this ties in with capitalism as well, because that profit motivation is um, a part of capitalism. So this prompted a descent into the Great Depression, which was a period of economic downturn that lasted 10 years, which at the time was the deepest and longest lasting economic downturn in the history of the Western industrialized world. And the crash is thought to have been caused by rapid expansion throughout the 1920s, resulting in these stocks being overvalued, while laborers experienced low wages, high debt, and a period of failing agriculture. And by 1930, the Dust Bowl began, which was a period of great drought, which affected the US's ability to grow food. So within the year, U.S. was seeing regular food riots and banks were collapsing. Um, and the way I always think about the Dust Bowl is from The Grapes of Wrath, mm -hmm. which you said that you actually didn't have to read in high school. No, I did not. <laughs> and, and I am very jealous because, you know, I was in high school and I was just like, this is boring. Why is everything covered in dust? <laughs> right? <laughs> but it was about, to the best of my memory, like a family traveling across the United States. They were starving. They were looking for work. Their labor was exploited on all these unscrupulous farms because everyone was competing for the same minimal farm labor. And the farmers were taking advantage of the workers by um, kind of doing company store type things where they have to live on the land and buy from the company store. And the cost of the goods they buy is more than the value of their labor and then they're kind of tied to it in this like weird form of indentured servitude and everyone's starving and they have to watch like crops being burned because they're not sellable i believe or maybe it was like a government program to regulate the release of food i can't remember the exact reason but they're starving they're watching this food be burned in front of them and on the very end a breastfeeding woman has to like breastfeed an elderly person to keep them alive which was a really intense scene and that's like the extent of kind of my memory about this. Um, I do know though in my personal life during the Great Depression, my great grandfather had been going to school in Chicago to become an illustrator and he had to leave and take my grandmother to go look for work. He, I think he was like single dadding at the time. So that is something that stands out in my mind too. It was, it was definitely like a major economic collapse, right? 
So then by 1932, Roosevelt became president and he was elected into this country with a nearly 25% unemployment rate. And within the next year, he had implemented the New Deal, which was his administration's plan to repair the US economy by focusing on what historians call the three R's, like relief for the unemployed and poor, recovery of the economy back to normal levels, and reform of the financial system to prevent a repeat depression, which involved the government spending to create new jobs, as well as new bank regulations, and tighter government controls over the economy. Or basically making that free hand of the open market uh, a little less free. So then in 1936, just as Roosevelt was being elected for a second term, John Maynard Keynes wrote the general theory of employment, interest, and money, which postulated that the total spending in a given economy determines the level of economic activity and subsequent employment. So it was his theory that governments needed to spend more money during periods of economic recession in order to stimulate the economy, which similarly restrained its own spending during periods of rapid growth. And this is kind of like the idea that we see now with what the Fed does in the US, right? We do high interest rates to kind of reel back you know, spending, and then we do low interest rates when we're like trying to get people to spend more money. So this is a, a pretty popular idea that we still kind of use today. And um, we talked about this in another episode too, that Keynes was the guy who thought we'd be working a 15 hour work week by the year 2000. Oh, how cute. This is very cute and pure of him. Um, and you will hear some like right wingers think that like Keynes was like a socialist or a communist, but in fact, he was very much a capitalist. He worried that left unchecked though to a true open market, capitalism might become like monopolized and collapse leading to a socialist takeover, which to him was like, oh my God, the horror, like the communists are coming, what could be worse? So despite this, many people do associate Keynesian economics with communism. And I suspect that's just because people don't really understand what communism is. However, Keynes was not on the side of the worker. He actually wanted to destroy labor unions and maintain labor markets, meaning that by today's standards, very much he would be considered a conservative. On Marx, he once said, Marxian socialism must always remain important to the historians of opinion. How a doctrine so illogical and so dull can have exercised so powerful and enduring influence over the minds of men and through them the events of history. So instead, Keynes believed in driving businesses by supporting business owners or the capitalist ownership class. So I kind of credit him more with this idea that the, the business will help, will be helped and supported by the government, but the people will not. Yeah, yeah it's like that weird trickle-down economic theory, which never has been proven to work exactly exactly and you're like okay all these safety nets exist for the people who need them the least the wealthy business owners and the safety nets we're not allowed to have for the regular people I just why is it so hard just to give people help or money or whatever they need you always need some sort of like well no we got to give it to the rich people to distribute however <laughs> they please and then they have a system for it. it's like no one can just do the easy thing for some weird reason and yeah also I think I one thing that I do remember from like you know a, a poli sci class when I was in school was like they were like oh Adam Smith capitalism oh he he never expected for everything to always work he said there needed to be some government intervention because eventually there would always be you know crashes by the nature of capitalism there's always going to be crashes every so you know, number of years. So they were like, oh, he never expected 
free markets to be unchecked because you can't do that or else people would just be miserable. And I was like, but but, but, (laughs) doesn't that defeat the whole thing? Yeah. Um, And like all of this kind of brings us, you know, up to capitalism and how it kind of operates today, right? Because we do, we see the government intervening to support business, but not individuals resulting in what I consider to be kind of like a corporate socialism revolving around this notion of being like too big to fail. We see imperialism and capitalism being intrinsically linked. We see capitalism structuring society in a way that best protects the interests of owners at the expense of the well-being of the worker, all in the pursuit of the capitalist owner increasingly hoarding wealth that they don't even truly need. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about all this is uh, Ayn Rand. Oh my god. And kind of the capitalist identity, like the mindset of the capitalist. (laughs) When I... oh. I saw someone who had an Ayn Rand bumper sticker when I was last in Colorado, and I almost lost my mind. It's just, I hate all this, like, survival of the fittest, like, all these people who worship Ayn Rand because she wrote a sci-fi novel about how it's good to be greedy, and it's not, ugh. So, for anybody who doesn't know, Ayn Rand was a Russian-American writer and philosopher who created her own philosophy called objectivism which she injected into her books, uh, which were usually fiction books, but just to espouse this great ideology she created uh, called objectivism, which literally was about how great capitalism is. She is widely considered to be like one of the biggest cheerleaders of capitalism. And her two most popular books are The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, uh, which are both truly just garbage books. Honestly, they're (laughs) horrible. So, okay, The Fountainhead came out in 1943 This is arguably the most popular Ayn Rand book. Um, And big trigger warning, this is a book in which a man literally rapes a woman into loving him. Yes, after a woman denies his advances, he shows her the true testament to how strong his spirit and individuality and drive is when he just rapes her. And then she's like, wow, now I see you're a man of action who takes what he wants without anyone standing in his way. I love you, which is just... What the fuck? Like, what? what? The actual fuck? Uh. Um, But the main plot of this book is that an architect who wants to build great things is held back by the needs of society. Fuck them. (laughs) Fuck all these other people who are just living their lives. Yes, so he is oppressed because he is not allowed to build... Oh, this... Oh, my God. (laughs) ...his big, ugly building or whatever that nobody actually needs... And then his horrible socialist coworker is creating a smear campaign against him. And then eventually, after being persecuted for his individuality, blah, blah, blah. Oh, quote, he- unquote, persecuted <laughs> for his, I wanted to build a giant building and be a dick to people, but people don't want to let me be a dick. Yeah. And then um, at the end, he wins and he gets to build his weird, ugly building. And he gets to stand on top of it with the woman that he forced to love him and she was so impressed with him and that's like the end of the book so a nightmare on all accounts a nightmare then the second really popular book atlas shrugged came out in 1957 and this is a book about like a dystopia where businesses can't thrive because of government regulation and a poor unfortunate executive is caught in the middle of this who in the end escapes to create a true capitalist utopia unencumbered by these people who are called looters, which is funny because we know that term actually comes from capitalism. Capitalism. <laughs> um, 
But the looters are apparently people just trying to redistribute wealth and resources that the company is hoarding. So the looters are actually defined as being like proponents of high taxation, big labor, government ownership, government spending, government planning, regulation and redistribution. And they're like the enemy. And then they're like, oh, the real hero of this book is John Galt. And fun fact, Brandy Melville. I was just thinking about that. Sorry to be slapping my hand down, but I was like, isn't that a Brandy Melville label? It is a Brandy Melville definition line. How come, like, I feel like everything is coming together like some really shitty fucked up puzzle. Like, this is late capitalism. Brandy Melville makes an effusion line called John Galt to honor this character who was, like, the god of capitalist propaganda. It would be (laughs) funny if it weren't, like, terrifying. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. It's very disturbing. Uh, Oh, my God. It's a little funny. It's a little funny. Why? I'm like, why, 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 why? Okay, so I've got this quote from Ayn Rand here. She says... My philosophy, in essence, is the concept of man as a heroic being, with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Uh, So that's the quote. What does that even mean, though? It's like, I think that people should be able to do whatever the fuck they want, and also fuck you. Yeah, literally, that's, (laughs) I think that's what it is. Like, I feel like it's like, you know, like, talk show tvs like in the or like tv talk in the afternoon like where the like the teenager would just be like fuck you i don't care about anyone else i do whatever i want i don't care i don't care about my mom fuck her yeah this <laughs> like, is I just feel like that has, it has strong jerry springer energy it does have strong jerry springer energy honestly yes um yeah, except she probably wasn't as cute as the people on no, the Jerry Springer show. No, she was not as cute or cool. She's just like... Because they put on, like, fun outfits to go on the Jerry Springer show. Yeah. And I also, don't think that Ayn Rand wore fun outfits. It's also not cool, like, fuck you, ma... Like, you know, not in a cool way, you know? Right. It's, it's in not a, in a like, fight the power way. It's not in a fight the power way. It's, yeah. It's, it's in a, like, we should combine with the power and... Ugh, it's just, like the raging for the machine you know that's the like the machine. twitter the twitter joke about conservatives who like rage against the machine like rage for the machine oh my gosh that's so good i know it's so funny um yeah so blah 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 right this all means the central tenet of her philosophy objectivism is that the most important thing a person can apparently do in their life is just take what they want by force uh, Rand rejected altruism and collectivism and instead supported capitalism and the free market completely, thinking this was the only system that allowed people to truly be themselves as individuals at their purest. Um, and this ideology to me is res- responsible for so much damage and destruction socially. I probably am like all like that Reagan era bullshit, which is why things are extra fucked now. Right. Um, and it's just, it's so odd to me that it's so unnuanced where it's like the only way that you can be free as a person is to fuck over other people. Right. And it's that thing too, where it's like, (laughs) you are so focused on your goals and yourself and what you need to do that. It's like, again, where does that intersect with other people and what they need to do? do? I'm like, do you have friends? Yeah. Cause from what I gather at the end of Anne Rand's life, she was alone and living on social security, which is, well, socialist to her 
For a while, she did have a partner that she fully supported. And a lot of her fans actually got mad at her. And they were like, you're doing the opposite. Like, you're funding this other person to live. Like, that's collectivist. That's altruist. And she was like, no, because I chose to do it. So it's fine. But you can have make all sorts of altruistic choices. Yeah, I know. It blows my mind how people... Basically, people just want to justify their bad behavior. And they use yes. freedom as an excuse. Yeah. So, okay, on top of, like, the Iron Rands coming to mind, I'm just like, ugh. Um, another thing that this whole history of capitalism makes me think of is the too-big-to-fail concept. Where in capitalism, if a company gets big enough, it successfully can just petition the government. Like, hey, I'm too big to fail because so many people will lose their jobs and the whole economy will be fucked. So you got to give me money to help keep me afloat. Which, you know, is not the free market, obviously, right? So it's a major contradiction of capitalism and harkens back uh, to Keynes trying to solve the problem of capitalism or whatever, which is that if left unchecked, it results in monopolies with too much power. Obviously, this is the primary flaw of capitalism and why the U.S. government has issued over a trillion dollars in bailout money in my lifetime alone to major corporations. So we, me and Kana, have seen government bailouts um, happen when capitalism has failed in our lifetime. And we have seen capitalism, like we said, epically fail twice in our lifetime. The first being the Great Recession of 2008, caused by a lack of regulation and oversight in the financial mortgage sector. During this recession, six million Americans lost their homes due to foreclosure, as the free hand of the market just did its thing, apparently. Uh, The banks they owed money to, though, they actually got their hand held through all of this. Uh, So on October 28th, 2008, Wells Fargo got a bailout of $25 billion. Bank of America got a bailout for $15 billion. JP Morgan Chase got a bailout for $25 billion. And Citigroup got a bailout for $25 billion as well. Morgan Stanley, $10 billion. And that's nowhere near all of them, but those bailouts alone account for $100 billion. And if that money had instead been divided out to American people who lost their homes, the ones who were targeted with the subprime lending and had no role in actually collapsing the government, or the economy rather, it would have been $16,666 per person, surely saving them their homes. Okay, so at the time I was reading so much on this stuff and when people approached and was like, we should actually just give um, the people who were given the bad um, mortgages, we should just bail them out and give them money like they were like oh absolutely not because personal responsibility and it's like these people got duped by bad mortgages yeah and instead like 1.6 billion dollars of this bailout money alone went to corporate executives at those banks in the form of pay salaries and bonuses they got bonus checks for tanking the economy well that's the crate like it's just like the system is is set up for grifters and if you read anything about like enron or stuff like that like the way that you can just manipulate markets to make money another great book about this is the big short which is the movie with um brad pitt oh i've never seen good good book good movie maybe i'll watch it um but um I mean, only in a sense of, like, it explains really well, like, what happened during the financial crisis. I don't really, um, you know, want to put people who made a ton of money off of that, like, up on a pedestal. Right. Like there. But it's just, like, basically... It's you're, horrifying and illuminating. Well, it's just, like, 
it's like a casino. It, it's like you just make money um, by making fake money things and putting it in a stock markets and doing all this weird technical bullshit that doesn't make any sense. To me, it's just like, oh, this is a this is a grift. This is a Ponzi scheme. Right. And it's supported by our government, unfortunately. Yeah. It's not even re- it, if you are going to be a true capitalist, like the way that it's set up is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And, you know, it's not even, if you think you are a true capitalist, it's not even capitalism, right? Because this is this Keynesian principle of uplifting society only by uplifting businesses and making special allowances to these businesses. Um, And this is the idea of capitalism that's reigned supreme, but this is not the free market. This is not actually even capitalism. Well, it's funny to me. It seems like it's like this level of, you know, and, you know, with it, all the wealth that's accumulated in the top, you know, one to 10% of people owning like 90% or something of the, the wealth in the country. It's just like, to me, it's a, it's a weird new, it's a more, it's almost more fucked up than feudalism. Because in a sense, when, if you lived in a feudal society, you're like, I was born a serf. I am not, you know, a lord or a lady. Like this is, uh, that's how it goes but in you know now we're like no you can if you work hard enough you can do it you can why aren't you not rich what you're insidious. not working it's it seems it seems a little bit more cruel rather than well actually capitalism luck of the draw you know like i don't know i'm going off on a different tangent here but it seems like they're they're so i mean you, we could do an episode that's like fucking five hours long yeah it's true the capitalism episode could be five hours it's so like in this other way like it's not cruel in to me I, i think it's it's not only a cruel system it's like nonsensical because it doesn't even give you know quote unquote the people at the top what they need because i feel like what everybody needs is like other people society cooperation like when you, when people are alone with all their money like in the anran world you are one dude left with all the money yeah. on the earth like that doesn't seem like a very fulfilling life yeah for sure um it's i don't know it's it's all really dark and then like to see this and to live through this and i remember we both graduated college straight into this and it was really like i don't know you see it and you're like, okay, this is not ideal for the path I thought my life would take. And like a lot of millennials our age are still struggling to recover from that. And then what do we walk out into, you know, maybe now when we're just starting to get our lives together, it's the pandemic of 2020, right? Which was caused obviously by coronavirus, but it was exacerbated by the wage stagnation and rising costs that have been plaguing people for decades now, especially in the US. Like companies received $783 billion in bailout money and this money, you know, we all knew it was intended for small businesses, but small businesses weren't able to access it. And all these companies who didn't even need it took it. So you had billionaires, country clubs, private jet companies, Kanye West, all received millions of dollars in government funding under this Paycheck Protection Program, right? Which was intended to, you know, let small businesses retain their employees during the pandemic. But instead you have people like Soho House, the exclusive membership club controlled by billionaire Ron Burkle, received loans totaling $9 million to $23 million by applying for seven loans through its New York, Miami Beach, Chicago, and West Hollywood locations. 
Despite the fact that last month Soho House raised $100 million from private investors alone, including Verkle, that gave the company a total valuation of $2 billion, equal to its pre-pandemic valuation. So it's like they did not need this $23 million loan, $9 million, you know, seven loans of that, of that size. And then we have billionaire developer Joe Farrell, famed for building and renting mega mansions in the Hamptons. He received a paycheck protection loan of a million dollars. And he made headlines in May when he rented a mega home called the Sandcastle for $2 million just for the summer. And this guy got a million dollar paycheck protection loan. And then you got Kanye, right? Yeezy received two to $5 million in loans. Um, but the brand is already worth $3 billion. And he also just announced a collaboration with Gap that alone will be worth over $100 million depending on performance. So all this money, what was, why did they take it? What do they need it for? They basically just use it so executives could pay themselves. Like one company, uh, Rumble On, secured over $5 million in paycheck protection money. And they spent that reversing a plan to cut back the executive compensation package. So during the pandemic, their CEO made over half a million dollars in salary for that year alone. I've never even heard of that company. Oh my God. <laughs> this isn't even one of the big ones, you know? And then, you know, the other thing that all of this makes me think of is like the decline of worker protections. Um, you know, obviously during the industrial revolution, workers were working in horrible conditions, making very little money. And then we saw this like slight period in the United States where it got a little bit better, like in the fifties and sixties, I think. Mm-hmm. I remember one time you were saying that the, uh, the great, ge- what is it? The greatest generation, mm-hmm. the silent generation. Uh, it, it's either the silent or the greatest generation. They had like, they enjoyed the greatest periods of economic prosperity. Oh, for the the, I think class. that's the silent generation, which is the generation that Joe Biden would be in. Got it. Yeah. So that would make sense. Cause during the fifties, sixties and seventies, you know, things weren't quite as bad here. Uh, but since then, we've experienced monumental wage stagnation still. Uh, in 1974, 64% of all of the income in the United States went to workers as opposed to the owning class. Uh, by 2017, that had dropped to just 57%. Since 1979, the median male wage in the U.S. has dropped uh, 1.4% for white men, by 9% for black men, and by 8% for Hispanic men. And in 2007, the U.S. middle class had $17,867 less than it did in 1979 due to growing income inequality. Low-wage workers, on average, uh, now earn 5% less than they did in 1979. High-wage workers, by contrast, earn 41% more. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, this gap between typical workers and CEOs, it just gets wider and wider every year. CEOs now make on average 320 times as much as a typical worker. But in 1965, that number was just 20 times higher, which is still bad. Still bad, but 320 times higher now? Uh, Last year, adjusted for inflation, the average worker took a 2% pay cut. Oh, my God. Yeah, and if minimum wage had risen along with worker productivity, as it was intended to do... Uh, it would be over $18 per hour. And instead, the federal minimum wage is just $7.25 per hour, or less than half of that. And the highest minimum wage in the country is in Emeryville, California, just uh, east of San Francisco. It's mm-hmm. where the IKEA is. They've got the highest minimum. <laughs> yes, I know where the IKEAs are everywhere. <laughs> they have the highest minimum wage. Uh, it's $17.13 per hour. So it is not that 18 an hour federally, it should be everywhere. 
if we were still calculating minimum wage uh, along with worker productivity as it was set up to do in the 1960s, we did that. So this actually corresponds also with the decline in unions. Unionized workers uh, earn on average 30% more than non-union workers. And as union membership has declined, we see a direct correlation to increase in income for the top 10%, showing how the lack of strong union representation creates an environment where workers earn less and their bosses earn more. The wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016. And income inequality in the U.S. is the highest of all the G7 nations, according to data from the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. To uh, compare income inequality across countries, the OECD uses the Gini coefficient, and it's a commonly used measure ranging from zero uh, or perfect equality to one, which is complete inequality. And in 2020, the U.S. had a Gini coefficient of 0.42, right in between Turkey and the Dominican Republic. Anything over 0.4 for the record is considered a big income gap. That's the qualification or like a problem. And ours uh, was 0.42. This is why in 2016, the IMF issued that formal warning to the US over our high poverty, recommended we raise wages to combat it. And there's also this thing um, that again, it seems like is the natural byproduct of capitalism, which is labor market concentration. So labor market concentration is thought to amount for up to 30% of wage stagnation in the U.S. alone. And this is because the market power is getting increasingly concentrated into fewer, larger companies, which limits the competition in things like pay for laborers and hinders their negotiating power. So monopolization is playing out and it's making it harder for workers to find good jobs or good options. Like one in 100 Americans works at Walmart alone. Wow. I know. And that's like almost as good as like, when I found out that there were more people who make their money off of social media than there were coal miners. Yes. So Walmart uh, sold over $400 billion last year and the average Walmart associate makes just $11.75 per hour or a little over 20K per year, which is below the poverty line for a US individual. With $15 billion of annual profit, which just to remind people, profit is extra money after all your business expenses are paid, they can afford to pay more. They can afford to pay more than this. And you know, the issue with labor market concentration is sometimes you'll see people online like, oh, like you work a mick job, you make minimum wage, you make low wages, go find another job, negotiate for higher pay. Where? Yeah, I was gonna be, or like when people are like, well, you should learn coding, it's like, and take time like I don't have time for like that that is not a skill I have I can't just be like okay I'm just gonna switch jobs right and then it also is like this weird thing where you're like okay well if the jobs you think are the bad jobs like a janitor like I don't know about you but I I like a janitor I like things to be clean around me like these are all all jobs are necessary jobs right so this idea that you know like, oh, if you work at Walmart, just like go get another job and negotiate for higher pay. Odds are in your town, there are three employers. Yeah. There I mean, are, and, and most of them are also probably huge giant monopolies yeah, who or, are keeping the wages low. Or people are like, well, just don't buy that coffee. And it's like, that doesn't make any difference. The like co- you can, if the majority, like there is no place in the United States where a person on minimum wage can afford a one bedroom apartment. Like that's true. So if the majority of your income is going towards housing, 
there is very little housing and food there is very little left you can cut yeah and this is the thing too it's like we know our wages are stagnating um and even declining depending on your income bracket but we we also have increased expenses so despite this wage stagnation um and even deflation prices of like things in our life are going up and not like in a normal like they go up with inflation kind of way they're going up like way more than inflation so in that year that wages went down two percent food prices went up 2.4 percent gas prices went up 45 percent and used cars went up 45 percent in 1960 the median home value in the u.s was $11,900 which is the equivalent of around $98,000 in today's money. In 2000, um, in 2000 it rose to over $170,000 though. So compared to that 98,000 in like 2000 money, 170, that's like double, right? So it's only kept rising. So in 2021, that number went up to 350,000. So these these jumps, they're, they're astronomical. So you see, you know, in 2000, what it should have been, it was double that and now who knows right because i don't have like the figure for eleven thousand nine hundred in today's money but three hundred and fifty thousand dollars is an astronomical jump in the price of housing and we're expected to keep up on less income and part of this reason is of course the artificial housing shortage created by landlords because we do have enough houses for everybody to be in but landlordship has been on the rise in the us and we've talked about this before and it's making it harder for low-wage workers to buy affordable housing and it creates more competition and makes it harder for their tenants to save enough money for things like a down payment because they're able to raise rent more and more because rent is usually more expensive than a mortgage payment, as we all know, so the landlord can make a profit. But if everything in your neighborhood is all owned by landlords, all of the rent is higher, mm-hmm. right? Because all of these people are living off of the excess, so it's like artificially raising the prices as well. So adjusted for inflation, median rent in the U.S. is 64% higher now than in 1960. Wow. Yeah, so we're paying almost, you know, almost double, not quite double, what we used to in terms of a percent of our income going going towards housing. And for college, like, remember that whole, like, learn how to code thing? Mm-hmm. College costs so much more than it used to. College has increased in cost 212% after inflation since 1987. Yeah, I am still, we are both still paying off our student loans student loans yes so it it was one thousand four hundred ninety nine yeah ninety dollars per year in 1987 which is like the equivalent of three thousand one hundred ninety dollars in today's money um but in 2018 the average cost somebody paid was nine thousand nine hundred seventy dollars so that's three times what it would have been if it had just kept up with inflation so you know just go code just learn a skill it's like well that's getting progressively more difficult to afford as well even higher than things like housing costs you know we see this number jumping up just astronomically and then on top of all of that we also are dealing with a a lack of job stability we've seen this huge shift to the gig economy right because people are obviously disillusioned with the low pay and the long hours and not being able to get ahead and the gig economy like promises people the illusion of freedom right like escape capitalism Uh, But it actually just provides sporadic and unstable employment at sometimes even lower wages. And then if you're not in the gig economy, most American workers are still paid by the hour and half of them have no control over their schedules. 
Oh my gosh. I was just listening to something like that broke my heart about these algorithms that a lot of retail chains where they can, they do all their algorithms. So they just randomly assign people, you know, schedules. So you could have a closing shift, then work the next morning. And so you never know what your schedule is going to be. Um, so you can't plan ahead if you need like daycare or transportation and they can on these scheduling systems they can just click a button to make sure that nobody can work enough hours to get benefits yes so this actually goes along with this thing i learned which is that two in five hourly workers aged between 26 and 32 so these are like adult hourly workers they know their schedules less than one week in advance. So they can't schedule, like you said, childcare, transportation, like doctor's appointments. Right. You can't do any of this. You have this really unstable, chaotic life. And like, you know, it's conspiratorial to be like, they're doing it on purpose. They don't want you to be able to have energy and fight back. And (laughs) well, I don't think it's like tinfoil hat. You see people on the news being like, we can't give people unemployment. Like we can't pay people more because then they will not work. And then if they, if you give people too much money, then they won't want to do the job that we set out and you know, blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's not uh, it's a feature of capitalism to keep people at near starvation wages because that's, then you keep someone in that position forever because they can't, they don't have the resources to get out of a job that is bad. Right. Exactly. So you know, that's, that's like where we are today in the system that in my lifetime, I've not seen any evidence that it works, but it just seems like everyone around us is like, it's the best system. <laughs> it's working. And the I reality know. is there were so many different alternatives to capitalism. Yeah. And there's things that we probably just haven't even thought of yet. That is totally true. Yeah. It's like the world is only as big as we can imagine. And Who on earth would imagine, if you're like, okay, you're starting fresh, you're on a new planet, you're the only person there, okay? And you're gonna build your dream system, your dream society. Who would build what we have now? Yeah, people. (laughs) I don't know. Who would be like, you know what I think we need? A system where people don't have access to housing, nobody is comfortable eating, uh, very few people have access to savings, nobody can access education, uh, everything's kind of shitty, and you can't just go outside and eat food and drink water and breathe air because we're privatizing everything, we're privatizing it all. Like, who would be like, that's my dream life? Like, I can't wait to live in that society. Everybody's dream life is like, I don't want to work, I have a cute house, and me and my friends just hang out and we go on kooky adventures. Basically, it's how I, the the animes that I like. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have to work. Like, I just think about like, wow, like there's so much life you can live when you have to work very little. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it's like, that's, I think what most people want. They want to barely work, maybe not at all. But, you know, I mean, probably people like us would work a a little bit. Yes, I feel like I'm a worker. We're like, we're driven. Yeah. compulsive we're worker bees but you know it's like you want to hang out with your friends you want to hang out with your family you want to go on adventures you want to see what the mystery of life is like you don't have the space to like really appreciate like the full potential mystery beauty whatever of life if you are constantly thinking about the where you're going to sleep where what you're going to eat like your safety your health like And to me, what we've 
you know, research, what we've talked about a lot, there, we do not live in the scarcity that people think that we do. There is a lot there we don't live in as much scarcity i'm just that yeah there's think. enough there's enough for us all like we said there's enough money to combat homelessness there's enough material resources on the earth to feed everybody to house everybody um so you know and we have enough that we don't need to be even working these long work weeks and i think like yeah we just have to dramatically reimagine like what kind of society is possible and not from you know, people get so hyper-politicized. Like, you hear people say, like, we can't do that. That's communism. And you're like, fine, fuck it. Let's not use the word then. Like, just call, just let's use, let's use whatever. something that's not what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't care what you call it. You know, like this, the the, the fact is that it's what, we're, what we have now isn't working. And that's, I think, what we need to be talking more about. Yeah. You know, people need to understand that this is a problem and this is not the way the world has always been and it is not the only way the world could be. Like, um, I think you were telling me about a book you read where they were like, oh yeah, people who lived in like the era of kings thought there would always be a king. That's Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah. They, she was like, people could never imagine that there would be a different system than a king or like, you know, that the the sun, you know, or that the earth revolved around the sun like and we just assume that capitalism is the way it is the way it works the way it always will be right so we need to imagine a world without money (laughs) thanks so much for listening if you would like to support us we are on patreon it's patreon.com slash pick me up i'm scared for $2 a month, you will receive access to a link where you can leave us voice messages that we will respond to potentially on an episode here or on a special Patreon-only bonus episode, which I think we might record one today. Ooh. Ooh. Thanks so much for being here.